Did you open up your Bibles to Joshua chapter 10? That'll be our main text this morning. We're going to stop at a couple places on our way there, but we will get there. We are walking through the book of Joshua in a series called The Promised Land. And for us to understand the promised land, we first need to know that God's people had been enslaved in Egypt. That's the first part of the book of Exodus. When God hears their cries, the moans of his people, and he raises up Moses to deliver them. And they walk out of Egypt on a journey that will take them to the promised land. By the way, that's the rest of the book of Exodus. And we might be tempted to think that having left slavery behind, having left Egypt to return to the land that God has promised them, that it would all be downhill after that, that it would be easy, that it would be simple, and that they would live carefree, and you would be wrong. Friends, we can so easily be tempted to think that life with God or life in Jesus Christ is supposed to be easy, that it's supposed to be simple, that it's supposed to be carefree, and yet nothing we find in the scriptures matches up with that reality at all. In fact, the more you lean into the scriptures, the more you read Old Testament and New, the more that you believe in Jesus Christ, the more that you will enter into what the Bible calls a war. Just like the Israelites in the promised land. Let's spend some time in the New Testament verifying this. Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Finally, he's writing a concluding passage. Having given them doctrine, having told them how to live out their faith, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Does that sound like an easy day? Why would you need armor if you weren't at war? Friends, the devil is scheming against you. Verse 11. You are wrestling against the spiritual forces of evil. Verse 12. And you are in an evil day. Verse 13. That's every day. That's this morning when you woke up. That's tomorrow when you wake up. That'll be Tuesday also. We need to understand and see what this fight looks like. That in Christ, it's not cheesecake and apple pies every day, but a fight. Paul writes about this to the Romans in chapter 7, gives us some practical ways of seeing this. Romans seven fourteen. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. That's Paul writing. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. This is Paul. 
So we've got Jesus up here, the perfect one. Can anyone pull off Jesus? Absolutely not. You don't even have to hope. It's nobody. And then you kind of have Paul, and we kind of put Paul on this pedestal like, yeah, he's the guy. And Paul is writing and saying, I do not do what I want. The thing I want to do, I don't do. I end up doing the thing I hate. Did anybody set out to do something this weekend and say, I'm going to do this? Didn't do it? Did anybody say, man, I'm not going to do that and then fell for it? That's what Paul is writing about here. And he's not talking about a a diet plan. He's talking about a, a fight for sanctification, a desire to mortify sin in his body, to put it to death. To see Christ exalted, he's like, God, just keep giving in. This is Paul in Romans 7 writing that to you. Listen to what he says. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And then three verses later, he'll write, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul in Romans 7 puts it out for you. That you have a desire but not the ability. And that there is a war raging on against you. He writes that to you to confirm it for you that your battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against sin. That's why a chapter later in Romans 8, he'll say, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you want to live what Paul is writing, by the power of the Spirit, you must kill sin. You can't tolerate it. Now, will you ever finish that battle? Absolutely not. Paul makes that abundantly clear, even to the end. It was a fight. He had desires and was falling. He had desires and he fell. And yet we fight on lest our flesh take victory. We wage war. So what might that fight look like? Turn with me to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua 10 verse 1. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem. Now, put your finger there for a second. This is the first mention of Jerusalem in the Bible. I want to point that out to you because it's worth noting that Jerusalem was a pagan city. Run by a pagan king and absolutely full of idolatry. Now, I want you to see that because even Jerusalem that shows up here in Joshua 10 is the same city that will show up in Revelation 3 and Revelation 21, the city that God will make his dwelling place for, for all of eternity, that God will completely and absolutely redeem. 
It's an incredible picture of redemption. Absolutely, it's a side note. You can't preach that from the text. But I think we need to appreciate that if we're going to fight sin, we've got to keep the whole picture in mind, and that's to see the end. To keep it all in perspective that you and I, who are in Christ Jesus, will be absolutely, completely, and totally redeemed in our entirety. That if you know Jesus Christ and you've believed in him unto salvation, you will be dressed in white. You'll be sanctified completely. And there's not a fuller or more complete picture I can paint for you. But again, that's a side note, but something you got to keep in mind. For Joshua 10, when they have this city of Jerusalem, it's giving us this perspective, this king. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, because it was greater than Ai and all of its men were warriors. And I want you to take notice of this over and over again. We pointed out all the time that the king of Jerusalem knew who the God of Israel was. He knew that God was at work through the people of Israel, and yet his response was not repentance. It was to wage war. We have to keep coming back to that because we're going to have to keep coming back to destruction. Verse 3. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me. Let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua, the people of Israel. So you see in Adonai Zedek that he gathers up these other kings because he's trying to get together a cohort. He's building an alliance of people to oppose God and oppose his people. Verse 5. Then the five kings of the Amorites. The text clarifies us for us that these five kings were all Amorite kings. It's an important clarification because, again, it points us back to Deuteronomy 20, which we preached like seven weeks ago, that these cities, these kingdoms were designated for destruction because God had already put judgment on them and that this would serve to the Israelites and to us to be a constant reminder of how seriously God takes sin and how seriously he takes our ability to fall for it. That's Deuteronomy 20. The five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. You can see the picture. You've got five kings, five armies starting to encamp around a people ready to wage war. So what did the Gibeonites do? Verse 6. The men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. 
So if you weren't here with us last week, you missed that the men of the city of Gibeon were Hivites who deceived Joshua and the leaders of Israel, tricking them into covenanting together, which is why they've now got to go to fight. And we need all that background for it to make sense for us. So we'll see the meat of the text because we're about to land in how do you fight sin. This is what I want you to pay attention, verse 7. So Joshua went up from Gilgal. He and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I've given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Now, if you've been here with us as we've walked through the book of Joshua so far, you would have noted that there's a huge distinction between Joshua inquiring of the Lord and Joshua acting out in his flesh. Here, he's inquiring of the Lord, and this is what he hears. These are words we've seen in Joshua already. Do not fear them, for I've given them into your hands. That's what the Lord says. They're already in your hands. God, before anything has physically happened, says, this is in the past tense. It is an already and not yet moment. It's as if God is saying it's already been accomplished, and I'm calling you to faithfully walk through it. As if God were saying, be faithful in doing the thing that I've already done. Saturday mornings at my house is a cleaning morning. We call it family mean-up. One of the many chores that has to be done during family mean-up is we clean the kitchen, including the sweeping and mopping of the floor. One of my daughters came in sat yesterday morning and said, Dad, I want to help mop. Awesome. Now, my daughters are not great moppers. I point that out. One, because they're not here. Two, because it's true. So when my daughter wanted to mop, there was one reality that made this day a great morning for her to mop. You know what that reality is? I'd already mopped the floor. So the floor looked great. So when she wants to help, I'm going to encourage her, yeah, mop the floor. This is great. It's already been done. So she gets to already do something that's already been done. She gets to step into it, and she goes, Dad, how's it look? Oh, honey, it looks great. Like all the little spots are gone. It looks fantastic. It had already been accomplished for her. That's what... God is putting before us, I've already accomplished this for you. Friends, if we are going to wage war on sin, and I think that's the message in the book of Joshua, this is the first step. Know that God has already accomplished it for you. Paul will use different words than this, but he'll write this in Romans 6. This is what he says. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Sin has no power. It's already done. Now consider this for a moment. If I, hypothetically speaking, had a dead rabbit in my yard, could that dead rabbit What harm could that dead rabbit do to my flowers? What could he do to my garden? What holes might this dead rabbit dig against my foundation? And I tell you, the rabbit's dead. It can do nothing. So it doesn't do me a whole lot of good having, hypothetically, a dead rabbit in my yard, which may or may not have been shot by a pellet gun. That's totally hypothetical. I then am no longer forced to fight the 
the impact of this dead rabbit because he's already shot. He's already on the ground. Again, that's all hypothetical. Hear this. The fight against sin has already been won. What Paul says is, you are dead to sin and alive in Christ. This is an already not yet reality that we will struggle to live out. That's why Paul says that in Romans 7. Why do I do? Friends, it's absolutely true. And we'll struggle to live it out. And for Paul and for you, and just like the Israelites here in Joshua 10, it's already done, but we have to show up for the fight. And that's what they do. You see that in verse 9. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. Now, if you were to look and use an unused part of your Bible, you flip to the back and you looked at a map, you would get a sense quickly of what a radical action this is. Because when Joshua decides, hey, I need to take some action, he gets his army together and they march all night long, covering at least 25 miles, dressed for battle, carrying their swords. That's showing up. That's showing up expecting to win. That's showing up understanding that what God has already promised to you, He's already accomplished. I think what Joshua has to say to us, if we're going to fight sin, we have to recognize that the battle's already been won, and we have to show up like it's already been won. But you got to show up. That's what happens here. They're dressed for battle. Let's see what happens. Verse 10. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Mechida. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, this is my favorite part of the story, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And there are more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Now take a moment and look at the Bible in your hand and watch your verbs. Verse 9, Joshua came upon them. Look carefully, Joshua showed up. Now what happens next is crucial because in verse 10 you see it's the Lord that threw them into a panic. It wasn't Joshua. He shows up to the fight, but it's God who changes the scenario. It's God who changes the scene. It's God who starts to claim the victory. And if you should think Joshua needs to be doing more, God's got to take it care of. Verse 11 the Lord threw down large stones. You'd find that there are large hailstones. That matters. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this is my favorite line. There are more who died because of the hailstones than because of the swords of the Israelites. Friends, who won this fight? God! This is the exact picture you see in Jericho. Walk around the walls. 
And the walls come tumbling down. Who won that fight? God. Who won this fight? God. Joshua's called to show up, to be faithful in showing up. That's his responsibility, to show up ready to do war and to expect God to take the victory. And God did. And it is worth pointing out here that these hailstones are more than just symbolic and more than just a weapon. In his commentary on Joshua, Tom Constable wrote notes, the crossing of the Jordan at high flood and the cyclonic hailstorm at Aijalon are of special theological significance. For Baal was the great Canaanite storm god who was supposed to control the rain, the hail, the snow, and the floods of Palestine. These episodes prove that Baal was powerless before Yahweh in Palestine as he had been in the episodes of the plagues in Egypt. Which is to say this, that God did not just choose hail because it was convenient to him. God chose hail because he wanted it to be known that he was the one true God who reigns over all things, even pagan idols. He is the one true God, and he is the one that will give you victory. But the fight wasn't over. Verse 12. And at the time, Joshua spoke to the Lord, in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, he says in front of everyone, the whole army, Son, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. Friends, Joshua was being faithful. God was giving them the victory. And even in the midst of this, Joshua was still praying. He was still seeking. He was still inquiring of the Lord. And he was still asking God to provide and to provide radically for him. He didn't just stop and say, hey, we're done. Good for us. No, he finished it to the end. And he does something radical here. He asks for the sun to stop. Now, that's a radical request. That's a move that says, God, you're in total control over everything. If you're going to say, hey, son, stop where you're at. We've got some war to, to carry on. You see Joshua step into the radical. You see him asking and begging God to do something. Do we find that in the New Testament? Absolutely. You don't see the sun standing still. But in James chapter 4, James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes this. And by the way, the total context of James 4 is you fighting sin. This is what James 4 says. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Do you know why you're still in sin? Because you're not asking, did not be. I mean, that's a kick. That'll hit you between the chest. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, James writes. We're more interested in our mouths being fed, our bodies being healthy, than we are in actually waging war against sin. This is James. He'd go on to say at the end of this, summarizing it, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So just like Joshua would make a request, God, make the sun stop. James says, ask. 
That's Matthew 7. Ask and you will receive. Knock and the door will be open unto you. Our God is not hiding from us. He's not not making himself known. He's not hiding his strength. He's not holding back from us. James tells us that we don't have because we don't ask. Matthew says that, quoting Jesus, you don't have because you don't ask. Joshua asked that the sun would stand still, and in verse 13 it says, and the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about for a whole day. There's not been a day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of the man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Joshua's ask, God responded. And even in this, Joshua points to another book. He says the book of Jashar, by the way, it's an ancient Hebrew book that told stories of Hebrew heroes. It no longer exists, but it's referenced several other places in the Bible. He wants to say, you don't believe this happened? Look over here. It's written somewhere else. Joshua asked the sun to stop, and the text says it did. Now we need to step into that one for a moment. Because physically, and by that I mean property of physics, there are only three things that could cause this. There are three options on the table. Here they are. Because I want you to get a sense of God's seriousness here. If you're going to stop the sun, you've got three options. The first way to do it is to stop the rotation of the earth. I don't remember how fast we're moving around in a circle. But to be like... Nope, gotcha. That's one option on the table. Another option on the table is we're at an angle. I don't remember what that angle is. God could have actually go, no, let's just lean it back a little further. Do you understand the property of physics that are at play here? That God's like, I will take you so seriously in your request that I'll bend the earth. I'll stop it. Now, there is a third option that is way less probably problematic to physicists. He could just refract, refract light. He could show up as the Shekinah could show up and make himself completely known. Light could be there. There's only a challenge to that is the text says the sun stood still and the moon stopped, which pushes you back to one of the other two options. And if you take one of the other two options, you look at not only this earth being stopped, but you'd also have to appreciate the moon, which is also rotating the earth, also got stopped. So clearly a two-handed move by God to go, er, er, Does that give you some sense of God's interest in coming alongside you in support of your request that he help you fight sin? It should. It should build us up to enough to say God wants to help us in this fight that not only will he, has he won the victory for us and he calls us to step into it faithfully in the midst of the fight, we can make radical requests of him that he will respond to. Now the text tells you there's not been a day like it before or since, which does say that you shouldn't ask for that again. 
I don't think God's in the business of stopping the rotation of the earth again. He did it once to prove he could. And he's pretty creative, so he's not going to do it again. But it does tell you some things. Friends, in the throes of sin, I've always been amazed at the hardness of my heart and the things that happen when you're willfully giving yourself in and the phone rings. Somebody knocks on your door. There are always options. The Bible would declare to us that God always gives us a way out and yet the hardness of our heart, we push back on it. What this text would say to us, what it would speak to us about, is the fight and the wage war of sin looks like this. That we must reckon ourselves dead to sin. That's New Testament verbiage. That we must understand the war has already been won. Sin has no power over you. That in the throes of making a decision to give yourself over to something to recognize sin has no power over me. I don't have to make this decision. I don't have to follow through on this. I can change my mind. I can go a different direction. Is in a huge help. That's the first step you see in the text. The second one, having done that, is to walk that out. To walk in faith, to show the responsibility of yourself to not give in to sin, but to walk in faith and expect Him to work. You see that as God throws them into a panic. You see that as God rains down hail. It's God who won the fight. If you're going to fight sin, you've got to expect Him to work and watch Him do it. I gotta be honest with you, that may take 10 seconds. It may take 10 years. But we have to expect God to work because the story here that I want you to get is that God is moving his people out of slavery and he's moving them to Egypt and he's calling them to purify themselves that they would become more and more like him to reflect his character to the world and he's doing so in front of a group of people so that they would see the nature of God and he's not doing it because they were right, because they were good, because they were awesome, because they had great potential. No, the text says he did it with the Israelites because they were his. Do you know that's true about you? We're here and we belong to Jesus. And he's called us because we're his. It isn't anything special about us. First Corinthians would testify to that. That God has called us and we've responded to him in grace and Jesus Christ has forgiven all of our sins and he's moved us across the Jordan River. And just like the Israelites, we're not moved into a place of peace, happiness, and video games. Not there's anything wrong with video games, CJ. Everyone should go to replay games. They didn't pay me. But we do need to understand that God is at work and he's saved us and he's redeeming us and he's purifying us purposefully. So our fight against sin is a purposeful fight that we become more pure, that we'd give in to less idolatry, that we'd be made more whole, that we'd find our identity more in him, that we'd find greater peace in him. 
greater satisfaction in him. And we'd fully realize everything that happened to us at the cross. Friends, what we find in this passage is that we are dead to sin and we're responsible to keep walking in faith and we expect him to work and that we should keep seeking after him and being radical in our requests to him. John Owen wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. I put it out there like six months ago. No one's picked it up. It's a tough read. Owen, in his book, gives eight steps. They're remarkably similar to what we just pulled out of Joshua 10. This is what he says. First, look to your salvation. Know that Jesus Christ has saved you. Second, recognize that you must fight all sin. All sin, not just the easy ones. That's Ben's words. These are not John Owen's he wrote in... 1700s and wrote really complexly. You must fight all of it. Third, you must meditate on how dangerous sin is for you, how dangerous sin is for others around you, both temporally and eternally. Fourthly, you must meditate on the horror of sin against the gospel of grace. Recognize how offensive your sin is to God. Fifth, you must pay particular attention to your natural weaknesses. Six, you must observe and learn the ways of the enemy. Seven, you must rise mightily on the first sign of sin. And eight, you must be fast at medication, particularly if it's a sin in which your body is naturally inclined. What he says is move fast. Fight it quickly. At the first hint, flee. Now, it's still sitting on my bookshelf over here. You're still welcome to take it and read it. But as we continue in the book of Joshua, God takes sin so seriously. He takes our purity so seriously, and he calls us to wage war against sin. Let me pray for us, and we'll be done. Father, thank you for your abundant grace. Thank you for Jesus Christ, whose blood covers us in whom we find forgiveness. Thank you for Jesus who walks with us even in our temptation. Thank you for Jesus who always gives us a way out. Thank you for Jesus who won the victory. So Father, when I struggle against anger, when I struggle against lust, when I struggle against pride, when I struggle against my flesh, you're always there. You're always present. You're always giving me a hope, and you've already given me the victory. Father, can I just trust you in that and act accordingly? To know that it's already taken care of. Father, would you give us all the strength to walk in obedience, knowing that you've claimed the victory, and to trust you to fight the fight? That's our war against sin. It's not white-knuckling it. It's not being stronger. It's not trying harder. It's trusting you more. Father, would you just give us that vision? Jesus, we love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.